Welcome to the Magic and Alchemy podcast, where we talk about witchcraft, setting intentions, forgotten folklore, and mythology. Created by Tamed Wild, magicandalchemy.com is a collection of stories, rituals, and articles crafted by a variety of creators and writers, including myself, Kristen Lizenby, and my co-host, Kate Ballou. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Magic and Alchemy podcast. I'm Kate Ballou. And I'm Kristen Lizenby. Happy Ostara! Yes, happy Ostara and blessed spring equinox to all of our listeners in the Northern Hemisphere. Technically, the spring equinox is in a few days, but I am a firm believer in celebrating whole seasons. I know that holidays like this bear influence over more than just the sacred day itself. So other than the warm weather, what are you looking forward to the most? Flowers. (laughs) Flowers. <laughs> it sounds very cliche, but my love of flowers has grown exponentially in the past few years. Not at all. I am in the same space. But do you have a favorite one that you feel most drawn to? Impossible to choose a favorite, but each year I fall more in love with sunflowers, borage, and also nasturtium, which grows wild along the rock walls here and is really beautiful. You'll have to send some photos. Definitely. It's not so surprising, but I love both sunflowers and moonflowers. Cody brings home sunflowers from this little shop on the corner near our apartment sometimes, and moonflowers or datura definitely remind me of my childhood. There's actually quite a few moonflower plants on the sidewalks in Brooklyn, And when I moved here, I found it really, really surprising. And Datura has some amazing folklore along with it. A lot of flowers do. So, while we have flower magic on the brain, what spring rituals are on the horizon for you? Maybe some altar redecorating, or candle magic, or channeled writing? I think I'm definitely going to be deepening my practices in herbalism and around plants. I'm beginning an apprenticeship with Green Witch Robin Rose Bennett this month, which I am beyond excited about. And I actually looked in Robin's book, Healing Magic, to see her suggestions for spring equinox. She suggested that we meditate on our own ageless selves by meditating on our rebirth, and she also had some questions to ask ourselves during this time. How am I birthing what I conceived at winter solstice? What am I rebirthing in myself and in my life? I'm also taking a poisonous plants course with Catherine Solie. It's a continuation from the course that I did in the fall. I think this studying and community will really foster some new learnings and connection to the natural world, which I'm really craving right now in the city. So, of course, more books. (laughs) Yes, always more books. But that's super exciting, and I can't wait to hear more about these new ventures. Thanks. Um, Yeah, what about you? What is it about flowers that's really calling to you right now? I'm honestly still trying to figure that out myself. I usually focus more on growing food and herbs, which of course those plants produce flowers too, but there's something special about growing a flower, maybe one that has no medicinal or nutritional value to us, you know, and just growing it for the beauty Mm -hmm. and for the bees, of course. 
<laughs> but now that the weather is warming up, my greenhouse is the perfect temperature to hang out in. So I've been doing a lot of writing up there, sort of opening myself up to the plants and seeing what comes through and trying to make a ritual out of it. I love that. And I know we've talked about this before, maybe not on the podcast, but bees are truly and insanely magic. Also, this makes me wish we were neighbors, as usual. (laughs) The feeling is mutual. So about a month ago, during InBulk, we talked quite a bit about the start of spring and what that looked like for our ancestors. We also talked about how we can bring that same energy into the modern world. We spoke about Bridget, planting seeds, and rituals to usher in and bless new projects. So since we're going to be talking about Astara today, I noticed that it has so many similar themes, like purification, transition, Mm -hmm. caring for plants, also resurrection, thanks to its association with the Christian holiday Easter. But I think what sets Astara apart from Imbolc is that Right now, we can actually see the earth transforming, whereas during Imbolc, the ground might have still been covered in snow and creatures still hibernating. During Astara, depending on where we live, of course, the earth has thawed, the bees are out, and like I mentioned earlier, the flowers have reappeared. I feel like I can actually like feel myself softening, much like the earth. Have you also noticed this? Absolutely. I've noticed more softening in myself this year than ever before, which of Mm -hmm. course makes me wonder why. You know, is it partially due to the pandemic, which in some ways has been a year-long winter? Or is it the awareness that comes with age and the desire to ebb and flow with the seasons to be determined? Yeah, I definitely feel that too. Um, Another theme that I was kind of noticing through the folklore is that I feel like I often see battles depicted between the seasons, which I'm really interested in. I know that we spoke about the Holly King and the Oak King around Yule, and Brigid and the Kaliak, uh, their transition of power kind of around Imbolc. And these battles always have this set winner and loser, and it's repeated every year. Yeah, I also think of the green man, the spirit of the forest, who appears as we inch into spring and summer. Mm -hmm. The green man symbolizes rebirth and vitality, and he shares some similar qualities with the horned god, who, of course, is reborn at Yule and comes into his own around Astara. Yeah, I came across a ritual that I had never heard of in Polish practices of the spring equinox, which we've talked a little bit about before as some of my ancestry is Polish, but it's a little bit of a darker ritual than what we may normally think of when we think about Ostara. You know I want to hear this. I'm forever searching for the most obscure rituals. You know, I was like, I have to tell Kristen. Do tell. Um, So this spring equinox tradition is called the Drowning of Marzana, and I think we talked a bit about her in our winter solstice episode, actually, but this is a pagan tradition that is still widely practiced today. So Marzana, if you remember, listeners, is the Polish incarnation of the old Slavic goddess of winter, plague, and death. 
Fearing her icy grasp, the best way for superstitious folks to protect themselves, encourage the timely arrival of spring, and ensure a good harvest was to partake in an old-fashioned witch-burning followed by drowning. In medieval times, the rite involved making an effigy of her out of straw, which was then wrapped in linen and beautified with ribbons and beads. On the afternoon of March 21st, the spring equinox, young children would play with torture the idol, gleefully parade it around town, and dunk it into every water barrel that they came across. At dusk, the villagers would gather at the riverbank, setting the effigy on fire and tossing it into the water and watching it disappear downstream. After the flames are thoroughly extinguished, the tradition is to remove the effigy from the water and parade it back through the village. Usually, this effigy is carried by young girls who walk from house to house, dancing and singing, and in some instances, collecting donations for the church. Today, children in kindergarten and elementary school still participate in the creation of a Marzana doll. These figures are usually made out of old cloths and rags, sticks and straw, and can range in size. Then, on March 21st, she's taken to the nearest riverbank or bridge, set ablaze, and thrown to her watery grave as the children sing springtime songs. Wow. (laughs) So much to think about here. I know. The idea or archetype of the winter witch is something that I'm so interested in. Part of me wants to be annoyed with it because witches already struggle so much with their image. Mm -hmm. But then again, I also understand the correlation between the winter witch, the crone, death, endings, the unknown, and our initial reaction to all things misunderstood. That's how I was feeling too, and I couldn't help but wonder about the translation of the word witch here. Like, are we referring to her as a witch because the translation lost some sort of nuance that kind of separated her, or is it kind of that same sort of perpetuation against witches that we're all working actively against? That's really interesting. It's definitely something to consider. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't know about you, but here in the Azores, the camellias are blooming, the hydrangeas are budding, and the ground is covered in little yellow flowers, so it would appear the winter witch has left the island. As we record this podcast, I haven't yet seen the stirrings of life here in Brooklyn, but one of my favorite shifts in New York City is how the people react in the spring. It will be interesting to see what this looks like during a pandemic, but in the springs of my memory in the city, it really re-energizes people, and you see a friendliness and enthusiasm in the city that is kind of missed all winter. People as flowers, maybe. Yes, I love that. Using flowers in ritual is one of my favorite things, not only because they're lovely and carry their own unique medicinal and magical properties, but because to me, they represent the unexpected beauty that follows transformation. Totally. Have you read the Bloom book by Heidi Smith? No, I haven't. In this book, Heidi writes about flower essences, and she has a section of history of flowers and healing traditions, and she talks about the lotus on the banks of the Nile River. And she says that the Nile River is said to be the cradle of civilization, evoking imagery of a lush Eden. So the lotus, both blue and white, is one of the earliest flowers to be depicted here, and the Egyptians adored flowers, which is evident by their abundant depiction in ancient art and texts. 
She goes on to write about flowers used with the divine as offerings and as funerals, and this is definitely a good text for anyone looking to work with flower essences, but I love history like that, and it really goes to show how long flowers have been revered in sacred work. Have you ever worked with flower essences? Not for quite some time, but now that I live somewhere where I have access to an abundance of plant life, I'm definitely going to change that. Yes. Flower essences are so cool to me because they're vibrational medicine. I have an empath um, one that's based on a Bach flower remedy, and the Bach flower remedies are solutions of brandy and water, and the water contains dilutions of flower material. And this was developed by Edward Bach, who was an English homeopath, and in the 1930s, he claimed that the dew found on flower petals retained the healing properties of that plant. That's super interesting. I've always heard that if you're making a bouquet or flower crown or just pressing flowers for yourself, that you should forage for them first thing in the morning. Mm. And I always thought it had something to do with, you know, grabbing them before they wilt in the afternoon sun. But maybe there's more to it than that. Yeah, I wonder if that's related. I've actually been thinking a lot about flower crowns. (laughs) Since you mentioned flowers and their history and usage, I mean, obviously flower crowns saw a Lana Del Rey Coachella rise to stardom in the last handful of years, but they've been used in rituals for centuries. The flower crown was originally created to mark the seasons and to honor land, and they were worn in ceremony. These can be Mayday crowns to Olympic olive wreaths, and the ancient Egyptians, Greeks, and Romans all had their own versions. Maidens would wear white flowers in their hair to signify virtue. Crocuses, daffodils, or lilies could be a good idea for this season if you wanted to make your own crown for Ostara. I also love the idea of using some less desirable flowers in crowns, like violet, Mm. since it has the reputation for taking over gardens, but it's so beautiful. I love that. When I was researching, I found like photos of amazing flower crowns, from Frida Kahlo to Elizabeth Taylor to Ophelia and Marie Antoinette. It's definitely a mood. Yeah, and something that's really interesting is that the vernal equinox, which is another name for the spring equinox, uh, comes from that Latin word meaning blooming. Which makes perfect sense, literally and figuratively. Definitely. And I also can't help but think about flowers in the fae. Maybe some fairy magic will be in the air this Ostara. I hope so. But for our listeners who maybe aren't as drawn to flowers, there's always another springtime ritual, like egg decorating. Witches, seers, and the more experience might lead into umancy or divination with eggs. This is something I've never done, but from what I've heard, umancy is eerily accurate and was something practiced by our ancestors because many of them raised animals in certain times of the year, eggs were plentiful. I didn't realize that practice had a name. Yeah, I think there's a few different variations, but umancy is the easiest to pronounce, (laughs) so I'm going to go with that one. Makes sense. Yes. But even if umancy is new to us, Easter egg hunts are something that likely many of us grew up with, 
And if not in our family, then maybe we remember hunting for real or plastic candy-filled eggs at a friend's house or during a neighborhood Easter egg hunt. As a child, I never gave a second thought to the egg as anything other than a prize to be won, but things have changed. In March's Tamed Wild Box, I wrote a ritual involving an agate egg. It was inspired by Astara, but not designed in a way that you have to perform it on the equinox. So if you haven't gotten your box yet or ordered late, don't worry. Just choose a day, time, a moon phase that aligns with your intention and schedule as you see fit. I can't wait. Yes. For this ritual, we chose to use a crystal egg because it symbolizes new beginnings, stored potential, cyclical regeneration, abundance, and in some stories, the entire universe. Similar to a seed, another way to think of it is that the egg can represent you. Hmm. All humans start out as an egg within a mother, so working with an egg in ritual, especially when we're seeking to better understand our capabilities in the vast web of existence, is powerful. Even more so at a time like the spring equinox when we've just gone through a major transformation thanks to the dark months. And even beyond Astara and the idea of renewal, eggs appear in folklore and superstition throughout the world and I gathered a few of my favorites to share. Ancient Egyptians believed that Ra, the sun god, hatched from a cosmic egg. Because of this, the sun was often referenced as an egg. According to myth, it was laid by a goose, but hatched by a phoenix. Perhaps this is a nod to the egg as a symbol of life after death. We see a similar idea in Old World Rome and Greece, where people were said to have buried their dead with a stash of eggs, usually placed in a nest, which also sounds like a reference to a new life that awaits the deceased. And speaking of ancient Greece, when I think of an egg, I also think of the winged goddess Nyx, who, to me, often represents the creative energy of the void. Nyx is the daughter of Chaos and is one of the primordial Greek gods. But she was lonely and in love with the idea of spending her life with others. So she did what any dark goddess would do, and she laid the cosmic egg. From the egg, the earth, the heavens, and all creatures were born. I think I especially like the story of Nyx because her desire for creation stemmed from love and the longing for companionship, not from the power-hungry, selfish whims of certain more infamous gods. Mm-hmm. And of course, there's plenty of references and folklore to eggs and fertility in the traditional sense, either suggesting that women hoping to conceive should or shouldn't eat, carry, or touch eggs, all depending on her ideology. I also found some German and Celtic stories of farmers either planting eggs in their fields or smearing the earth with the yolk to bless the ground before sowing. And just for fun, there's a rumor that on the fall or spring equinox, you can set a raw egg on either end and it will stand perfectly balanced. I'm not sure where this rumor came from, but I would think it has something to do with light and dark being imbalanced during the equinoxes. I think there was a rumor about brooms standing up on on those days too. I kind of remember that. Yes, I remember that too. (laughs) This also reminds me of the Orphic egg, which has been coming up pretty frequently in my life. I was actually just reading about the Orphic egg a few days ago. 
Yeah, the Orphic egg, for those who don't know, is an egg wrapped up by a serpent. So it's meant to represent the universe and also creative sensibility together. It represents all that is unbound and also bound. The serpent is also a symbol that can be worked with during Ostara. The snake is a symbol of rebirth, like the snake stretches and sheds its skin, and that can be a lesson in our own practice. Beyond the Orphic egg, there's also the Ouroboros symbol. That one is new to me. Yeah, in that one, the snake eats its own tail and gives birth to itself again. So it's a symbol of the infinite cycle, which I think spring is a great reminder of. I agree, and I think the egg and the serpent imagery just works really well together. Once I performed this ritual with an egg where I charged an egg with some feelings of shame and guilt that I felt I was carrying around and wanted to free myself from at the shift in the seasons, and I went out into the streets here in Brooklyn with a few friends, and we smashed the eggs on the earth, allowing these feelings to be free and given back to the ground, and it was a really powerful ritual. I love that. What you just described with using the egg as a vessel feels like something we could do regularly or whenever we want to end something or experience a rebirth. Definitely. Here in the Azores during the days surrounding the spring equinox, locals will cook masa cevada, which is a delicious sweetbread, and they'll place a single egg somewhere inside of the circular loaf. I could be wrong because my Portuguese is not that great, but I think whoever finds the egg is said to be blessed with good luck. And the idea that rituals involving eggs show up during Astara makes perfect sense if you have chickens. I don't know about other birds, but most chickens and ducks will stop laying once they lose the light and warmth that they were accustomed to during the light half of the year. I can speak from experience that my chickens have been on a four-month hiatus, (laughs) and then, like clockwork, a few weeks ago, eggs started showing up again. And I've always found it interesting that according to spring folklore, it's not a chicken who lays the egg, but the hare. (laughs) March is believed to be the start of mating season for some animals, including rabbits. Although rabbits don't hibernate in the traditional sense, they do spend more time in their burrows during the winter, just because there's fewer places to forage, fewer snacks, and they need to conserve their energy. But come March, and sometimes sooner, they're already on the hunt for a partner. Which makes me think of the Disney movie Bambi, where Thumper, the rabbit, for anyone who doesn't know, (laughs) who was previously only interested in eating blossoms, becomes mesmerized by his soon-to-be girlfriend, who sadly is never named. So, all this to say, rabbits and eggs symbolize fertility and abundance for obvious reasons in both real life, folklore, and ritual. I absolutely love Bambi, and the fawn is kind of another beautiful symbol of spring, right? I think so, similar to Imbolc being the start of lambing season. Mm. And rabbits are said to bring good luck, which is why carrying a rabbit's foot was so popular at one time, or at least it was when I was a kid. They also represent stamina and increased energy. It's believed that if we're in danger, calling on the spirit of the hare, the cousin of the rabbit, can help us get out of tricky situations, or whenever quick thinking is crucial. I also liken rabbits to messengers, ones that straddle the realms of life and death. The rabbit from Alice in Wonderland comes to mind here. 
The rabbit leads Alice beyond the veil and on her adventure or initiation. I actually got a white rabbit candle for my altar for the equinox, which I'm excited about. Yes, I really need to watch Alice in Wonderland again because I know that movie is just dripping in symbolism that my adult mind would love. I have a copy of the big book of symbols, and in it they speak about the hare as the keeper of the immortality elixir, perhaps because of this association with regeneration and the realm of the mythic, intuitive, and eternal, like you're speaking about. Yeah, and also lots of references in folklore to rabbits and hares living on the moon, which seems very fitting for the keeper of this elixir to inhabit one of the most mysterious and magical places around. I also find it interesting that rabbits are most active at dawn and dusk, which are considered really powerful times for spell work, and it sort of makes me feel like these creatures have a lot more to offer than we know. And I know that we're just about out of time and we went off on more than a few tangents, but (laughs) I just want to end with one additional thought about the rabbit and Alstara. At first, it might sound like all this talk of the moon and death and other realms has nothing in common with Astara, since this is a time when we're supposed to be getting reacquainted with the earth. But I can't help but feel that the rabbit is a mirror of us. Perhaps like humans reemerging after winter, the rabbit has just returned from the underworld. If we show respect to the hare and other symbols of Astara, in the form of offerings, egg divination, or something else that speaks to us, then maybe they'll share something in return. Perhaps we'll make a new friend in the animal or spirit world, and maybe even one day, a loyal guide. Thank you so much for joining us today on Magic and Alchemy, a podcast from Tamed Wild. Again, we're Kate Ballou and Kristen Lizenby. You can find us online at k8baloo and at East and Alchemy. Send us all of your questions, comments, or just say hello via email at podcast at tamedwild.com. You can view all the amazing offerings from Tamed Wild on their Instagram at tamedwild or on the blog magicandalchemy.com. Join us for next week's episode where we sit down with astrologer Riz Cottrell to talk about the start of the astrological new year and how to work with the planets in the coming months. Just a reminder that magic and alchemy are always available to those who know where to look for it. So mode it be or something better. Until next time.